This episode is supported by the 100% online master's program in health and physical education at George Mason University. The program has a summer start and you can finish in two years while still teaching full time. If you're looking to take your teaching to the next level, George Mason is here for you. Uh, Discounts are available for Virginia educators and out-of-state tuition is subsidized. Uh, Go to thehpewebsite.com and click study with us for more information. All right, everybody, uh, welcome to article club number four. Uh, So basically this is um, we go around and pick a article once a month and uh, hope that you as a listener read it. We all read it and then come on the podcast to discuss it. Uh, to engage with us in the conversation, uh, we would urge you to get on Twitter and use the hashtag HPE research. So ask some questions. We'll have the uh, authors who are uh, Mats Hordvik, Anne McPhail, and Lars Torre Runglan. Um, they can also answer some uh, questions on there, but kind of getting um, an engaged group together. So today, uh, we have uh, Kevin Richards from the University of Illinois with us. Hey, Kevin. Morning, Risto. And Michael Hemphill from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Hello to both of you. So uh, the article today uh, is a self-study article. It just came out in Teaching and Teacher Education. Um, so the exact title, and we'll link to this. It's uh, open access, so you can read it. Um, so it's Developing a Pedagogy of Teacher Education Using Self-Study. It's a rhizomatic examination of negotiating learning and practice. So let's dive right into it. Uh, Kevin, you picked the article this week. Um, so um, I like that you picked self-study because I have heard a lot about it uh, lately. And I know you've uh, given some presentations on it, uh, conferences that I've seen. So um, why did you pick the uh, article? Uh, yeah, so um, I've been involved for a few reasons, I guess. So first, I've been involved in self-study research going back to um, my first year after my postdoc. Um, I was in a visiting assistant professor role at Northern Illinois University at that time. And, um, uh, you, you know, unlike most or, or at least many uh, uh, teacher education faculty members, I didn't have K-12 teaching experience coming out of my doctoral or coming into my doctoral program, rather. Um, and so I felt like there was this kind of hole in my practice, um, and I was looking for ways to fill that. And so I started asking myself, how can I become a better teacher educator, and what are the implications of not having teacher education, or K-12 teaching experience, um, for my identity as a teacher educator? Um, I ended up having conversations with uh, Tim Fletcher, and, and that led me to um, embark on some self-study work with with Jim Ressler when I was at Northern, and then subsequently um, through uh, a few additional projects that I've worked on uh, after leaving Northern down at the University of Alabama and now at Illinois. Um, and so self-study has become an important part of my practice and my identity and, and how I kind of uh, try to improve on a regular basis uh, as a teacher educator. Um, and I noticed that, you know, we didn't have one of these types of articles, uh, self-study article for Article Club yet. So I thought it might be a good way for us to kind of get this out there as a way to, to highlight self-study as a way to present one form of continuous professional development in which PEAT faculty members can engage. Uh, and then the last reason I would say that I chose this was because um, 
it's not published in a physical education journal. It's published in teaching and teacher education. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, while it's important for us as um, Pete faculty to, to contribute to conversations within our own disciplinary journals, I think that one way that we can show our legitimacy and contribution to the larger landscape of education is to publish some in their journals and highlight, you know, issues that affect our fields. Um, and, and so I thought that this was uh, an effective way of doing that, uh, and, and it shows that um, uh, you know physical education research can be well received uh, in, in these kind of more general education outlets. Yeah, and I think if it's situated correctly, I think teaching teacher education really rigorous journal too. So yeah, um, you know I think the the paper has to be written specifically for that. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So can you can you just uh, briefly give an overview of what self-study is just so we can kind of uh, the people who may may have not had experience with this? Can you kind of explain in like a, a one minute summary of what a self-study project looks like? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, self-study has been described as the intersection of action research and autoethnography. Uh, and what I mean by that is it has that kind of change-oriented effect that you see within action research where you're targeting a problem in a real-world environment and seeking to improve it through research. But then it also has this explicit focus on the self uh, and, this, and, and self-development that we see through autoethnography. And so you bring those two things together and you have this um, practice methodology, way of being, you know, kind of choose your terminology, where um, teacher educators, doctoral students, K-12 teachers, really anybody um, can, can choose or identify a problem of practice uh, and, and seek to, to improve that area of their practice through a systematic um, investigation. Uh, it, it typically involves um, engagement with a critical friend. Uh, and so you have somebody who's kind of like a, a, an outsider to your lived experience, uh, but who can clo- who, with whom you can closely identify. Um, and they kind of go on this journey with you uh, and, and help to kind of push you to think differently about, about your practices. Um, typically, uh, you know, a lot of self-study data comes from, um, from uh, journaling, although that's definitely not the only uh, data collection method that we see in the literature, interviewing, document co- uh, collection, et cetera. Um, but, but it does tend to be more of a qualitative methodology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think this specific article that um, Mots was the specific person that was going through mm-hmm. the self-study, I thought it was right. interesting for kind of the topic that he talked about in teacher education, you know, with the consideration of, you know, he was athletic, he was a coach, then he went through this PhD program and all of a sudden became a teacher educator. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think similar in your experience and just the way the U.S. system set up, you, you know, might go and get a PhD in kinesiology with a focus on physical education and your focus is on physical education research. And then you end up being a PEAT educator in a predominantly teaching institution and you're 80% of your load or 60% of your load is teaching future teachers, but you did mm. a physical activity intervention in uh, middle school or something like that. So I think the system is really interesting where yeah. we go through and get PhDs in this larger field, but then we're pushed 
well, we take jobs. No one's pushing you to get that job, but you take a position as a PEAT educator. And now we're considered right. experts in PEAT, whereas we may have not taken courses in teacher education, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, and it's really interesting because I think the field is kind of shifting this way a little bit. I think if you were to go back to, you know, the, the mid nineties, early two thousands, maybe even a little bit later than that. Um, it was, it was pretty rare to see uh, teacher education faculty members without K-12 teaching experience or who didn't have kind of a deep, a deep passion for, for teaching. Most, most people, you know, got into this because they were K-12 K twelve teachers and realized that they wanted to do something different or something more. They come into higher ed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now, now I think we see more, more folks. Uh, and I know that, that Michael's uh, very similar to me in this respect who, mm -hmm. who, who have some experience working with kids and, you know, a variety of different settings. Um, I'm actually a licensed uh, physical education teacher in the state of Massachusetts. Um, but I never taught, I never had a full-time job teaching. And so, you know, we start to see that more often now. I don't, I don't think that it's the norm. Um, but, but I also don't know that I think it's this major exception anymore. <clears throat> uh, interesting note to that is um, it, it seems like this self-study stuff requires you to be very vulnerable, like it just does. to be open to that, which is interesting. And I think, as early uh, early career scholar faculty member that can be difficult because you just yeah. feel a need to show this sense of um confidence and success and you know i've got this under control in my teaching and research and so forth and um so that critical friend and, and self-study model flips that a little bit but it would yeah. take a real you've been good about this kevin and opening up to doing this kind of work and making yourself vulnerable to expose some potential weaknesses along with your strengths. Yeah. You know, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that Michael, because I think that, that it involves vulnerability at a couple of different levels. And, and it's important to kind of understand that because you have to go into this with the mindset that you're willing to be vulnerable and kind of willing to, to dump out all of your dirty laundry on the floor so others can see it, <laughs> uh, with the understanding that, you know, your dirty laundry doesn't define you and that mm -hmm. viewing your dirty laundry can actually help other people improve their own practice. Now I'm going to mm -hmm. drop the, I'm going to drop the laundry metaphor because that's definitely played out. But, um, the vulnerability I think comes in at two different levels here <laughs> for first, um, you know, I, I remember the very first, uh, and I don't think that I've ever told Jim Ressler this, so this might be the first time he hears it, but um, I remember the very first time I went into his office and asked him to be my critical friend. It was probably the scariest thing that I'd ever done <laughs> because I was asking him to like, help me examine myself um, and help me to improve. And, and if he had said no, it would have felt like the most unbelievable level of rejection because it was about me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, related to that, this other level is that when you publish out to the community, then other people are going to read about your insecurities and, and your challenges um, and your growth as well, which I think is so important. But all that other stuff gets out there too. And, and this is a conversation that I've had to have with doctoral students over the years and, and, and recently actually who are engaging in self-study because, you know, it can, they have to be prepared to do that. You have to be prepared to put yourself out there. Yeah. And I think even with, with this study, it's a longer scope of research, right? So he's yeah. teaching a class, 
reflecting throughout, changing, and teaching another class. Um, I know you've had some of your doctoral students do this as well, and it's not one of these quick, you know, 16-week no. intervention studies or uh, a survey research. You know, you, you're pouring over, and I think the analysis for this as well was continuously, you know, ongoing throughout yeah. several, several consecutive months to actually witness change, which you would expect if you want to make a change in your teaching. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. So no. that's one thing, too, to to even be so forward thinking, like where Mats was like, OK, I'm going to do this self-study as I'm going through my doctoral yep. studies and then publish this now. I mean, he's had his Ph.D. This gets published in 2020. Like, I think that's also self-study is cool in that way. You started yep. mm-hmm. and then you reap the rewards like three, three years later in a really good publication. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And just one thing that I'll, I'll add to that real quickly is that, um, you know, with, with my doctoral students now, I have, I have conversations with them very early in their program, um, about the potential for self-study and I, and I don't, you know, force them to do it. Some, some have been interested, some haven't, but, um, you know, if they have a, a clear area, of practice that they're interested in uh, examining more through their doctoral education. The coursework and you know, other research will help with that, but self-study can be really powerful. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that both of you know my former doctoral student, Tomri Ivy. She did a three-year self-study uh, mm-hmm. learning to learning to use the TPSR model. And, um, you know, Michael was on her committee with me. Uh, and it's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant study. And it became part of her dissertation because we were forward thinking enough to say, okay, well, this is something you're going to be doing for the next three years. If we get that kind of data, then, you know, it's completely legitimate for this to be a dissertation study. Yeah. And that that was the one that she presented at ISAP. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And, and we're putting the finishing touches on that right now. And it, uh, should be going out to studying teacher education is the journal. I think we're going to target here pretty soon. Awesome. Good. So one, one takeaway I had that this has me uh, reflecting on since I read this a few days ago is um, graduate teaching assistants at universities. Uh, Kevin and I were both teaching assistants at Purdue and now we have uh, a pretty big program, probably a couple dozen teaching activity courses and other entry level courses at UNC Greensboro. And generally, you know, they get a peer evaluation or they get an evaluation from a faculty member. So they do get feedback and uh, they're pretty good teachers. But they're this article just suggested to me that, like, we're probably not supporting them at the level of helping them grapple with the complexities of teaching, like the different environment that they're in and so forth. And it would be hard for faculty members to stand up that level of support for GAs. We just have so much going on, but the kind of the peer model of critical friends could be something that, uh, that we could do, you know, empower them to be critical friends for each other Mm. and think more deeply about their practice. And now maybe that doesn't lead to a journal article, but um, we could be doing more to help our GAs just, become better teachers and then take that into their next, uh, you know, their entry positions at universities, which often are focused more on teaching than, um, than research, at least for that first job out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really great point, Michael, especially the point about, you know, it might not end up in a journal article. Um, so part of, part of kind of the, 
I guess the ethos of, of self-study is this need to, to be able to, to share out with a larger audience beyond yourself. But that doesn't so that others can kind of learn from your experience. Um, however, that doesn't have to be through traditional academic journal publications. I could see a, a forum where, you know, grad students get involved in self-study work and then present, you know, on campus to other grad students uh, who are, you know, uh, coming in for the first year as teaching assistants. So there, there are different ways that that can be done um, while still, you know, being able to rightfully call it self-study. Yeah. Right. And I yeah. and I would also say that, you know, a TA, GA coming in, getting a class in their first year or second year, you know, I don't think that the support they give is different than a first year tenure track or term assistant professor. They're just like, hey, yeah. here's your classes, yeah. figure it out. And I think yep. forward thinking, really passionate educators that are also interested in research might go this self-study route. And that says a lot about who they are as a teacher, you know, and yep. how they want to be. But I think, you know, I think the support system in a lot of different universities does not help, you know, new teachers, whether it's a TA or a first year assistant professor to learn how to teach unless you are willing to go through and find that. You know, I think both both you that have TAs in teaching positions, you know, I think that is something to you know, if you are a forward thinking person to really consider getting them the help that they need and getting them their support. But I, I like that, Michael, that idea of having uh, yeah. peers or partners to go through the process. And this, this can be used in some ways then also to address an identified problem of practice within our field. Um, you know, at the ASEP meeting uh, in Adelphi last year, um, Hans Vandermars, uh, Hal Lawson, and uh, Murray Mitchell and others uh, had this kind of conversation about professional development for teacher education faculty members and how many of us don't have opportunities to engage in continuous learning that's systematic and meaningful um, after we take our first positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, self-study to me is is one way that that can be done both you know, during those critical years of identity formation when you're in a doctoral program, but then also, you know, continuing on um, into uh, a tenure track position. You know, if you have a research requirement, but you still want to, but you still want to work on improving your teaching, um, then then self-study is one of probably a multitude of different ways that you can do that alongside other things such as scholarship of teaching and learning and scholarship of engagement. Yeah, and that's mm. that's one of the trends we found. Um, Steve, Dylan, Dario, and I did the uh, review of research on teaching over the last twenty years. It just came out in JTPE, and one of the trends yeah. in uh, research on teaching in physical education was that the population that were studied was um, adults, right? It was uh, pre-service teachers, or it was other faculty members. Um, but the idea was that we're working with more and more people around the university setting because it's easier, you know, and yeah. it's, it's harder to go out into the field and go in and, um, you know, go into the schools again, what we should be doing, but the trend is with all of this research requirement in, you know, even, even universities that on paper don't say like where I was before. They don't say that you need more than four articles to go up for tenure in um, 
in the five, six years, you need four articles to publish, but everybody around me was publishing, you know, two, three, four a year, but they were in different sub-disciplines. And then you look at just the balance of teaching, you're still teaching a four, four, and the expectations are super, super high. So um, I think that there's just sometimes a, uh, a misconnect there, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. and that, and that's a, that's a bit scary. Right? So I, I probably should have um, known about that trend that you just talked about. Um, but that's the first time I've heard that, uh, you know, that, 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 it doesn't surprise me. I don't think because of exactly what you're talking about, you know, it is easier access schools. I think have gotten more, more, they've put up more, how do I want to say this? They put up more kind of hoops or roadblocks, um, uh, through review processes, many of which are probably very much needed, but, um, it's more complicated going out into schools mm-hmm. uh, than, it, than, I, than I think it used to be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that we need both. I think we need research with pre-service teachers, teachers, teacher educators, the adult, the adult leaders in our fields. Um, but if we, if we don't, ever if we stop doing research with kids then that's a that, that's a major issue yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah this i mean you're talking about public schools kevin and this the other thing that's had me thinking about a lot is kind of some of the socialization research and i'm in, in schools here locally and just see a lot of teachers who struggle with how do you be a excellent teacher in the context of contemporary physical education? And there's all these external uh, constraining conditions as the article calls them, you know, facilities and uh, different kind of ways that PE might be marginalized and, um, and maybe fewer enabling conditions that I'm seeing take place and it's a struggle to figure out like how do we work with these teachers how do we support them um how do we make sure that we're not just writing them off as oh this is a bad teacher uh rather it's a teacher who's trying to do everything they can and they're in this difficult environment um to try to implement best practices and so it just had me thinking about that because this map can at least give you a way to map out like here's the situation I'm dealing with here and I, you know I don't know what the answer is to the challenge but at least now we can see it and if you can see it you might be able to change it right yeah and one of the one of the things I wrote down were you know exactly that constraints piece what are the physical constraints in your program and what keeps you know the three of us teaching the way you want to teach and you know for for me I feel like in the university setting a lot, one of the physical constraints we have is the schedule. You know, yeah. it's a Tuesday, mm-hmm. Thursday, 10 to eleven fifteen course, or it's a Tuesday, Thursday night, night class, four to seven. Well, mm-hmm. if you're doing a four to seven or a seven to 10 class, you're not going into elementary schools. They're not in right, session. Right. So then if you do it during the day and you're trying to carve out into this set university schedule at a 10 to 1115 class that's not backed up to another one do you have time to get off campus and go into a school right during that time to get back for your 1130 class yeah no and yep. you know we we've gotten you know as as much as we can creative with the schedule to build these awkward blocks in the middle of a Wednesday during the day so we can just meet out in the schools and I think that's really, really, really important in teacher education. And I think 
you know, even even this specific study, they talked about how the Norwegian pre-service teaching students were talking yeah. about they want to be more physically active, right? And so they were giving comments to Mats and, you know, they weren't getting to go out into the gym and be physically active. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm curious how, how this is in your programs. You know, how often do you lecture versus actually going through physical activity with the students and how do they, uh, how do they respond? Huh. Um, interesting question. Uh, uh, let me talk about the program at Alabama because, um, I've only been here at Illinois for a bit over a year and, uh, or I guess a bit over a year and a half now, and I'm still kind of learning about it, um, about the program. But, uh, at Alabama, I would argue that about 50% of our contact hours with pre-service teachers were in the field. Wow. <laughs> it was a very, very field-based program. Um, that had its limitations, uh, because it's hard to kind of scaffold learning, uh, across a semester, when you're going out into the field to do application uh, for, for a ton of the time. So we had to get creative about building in like on-campus seminars between um, field experience days. But, but I liked the fact that so much of it was in the field because the best way to learn how to teach is to teach. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, that, you know, they need to, they need to get some of the methods and they need to understand the models um, uh, or the, the instructional strategies that they're being asked to use. But, you know, I, I really think that the best teacher education program set up is one that's very field based that has, <clears throat> that, that's kind of supplemented with, um, with, with constructivist oriented pedagogies to encourage reflection and continuous learning, uh, along with the field experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm different, you know, I teach in this, EDD program, which is uh, the students are in an online program. Um, and so I have, I supervise students who are K-12 teachers, practicing teachers, and then I supervise a few that are faculty members at teaching institutions doing physical education. Mm -hmm. And then the third area I had where I, I do work with undergraduate students, actually a growing number of undergraduate students through my community engagement program at a local high school. And so my contact with undergraduate students is exclusively in the fields. I, I don't teach them any courses, uh, but I have about eight undergraduates who work in different capacities uh, teaching in my restorative practices program. And one of the interesting things is it's actually hard for me to get physical education majors into the schools to teach in the program because they have so many requirements yeah. of just the major. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I can get exercise science students left and right and occasionally like the random you know, biology student or something <laughs> is uh, yeah. helping. And, um, you know, it's a new-ish program, so I imagine over time that we'll be able to sort some of that out. But that's been one challenge for me is that, like, we're kind of stuck in this system um, where students kind of have their field placements, but yes. we're not happy with them. And yet it's hard to kind of shift it to a, a placement that's more optimal um, in, in some cases. Yeah, and I think you bring up some really good points there, Michael. Everywhere that I've ever been, in every like of these kind of co-curricular type programs that I've ever tried to run, um, whether that be after-school programming or programs for 
kids with disabilities, um, they all, it always is difficult to recruit pre-service teachers. Um, and over time, you know, I, my, my, my kind of understanding of why that might be has changed, but, mm-hmm. but where I kind of am with it right now <clears throat> is what you're getting at. We, we have the, the field experiences or the experiential learning opportunities kind of built into their teacher education program. Um, and those are typically in school-based settings. Um, mm-hmm. And they're often also tied to um, accreditation requirements that students get a certain number of field hours, you know, teaching in their subject within a real-world environment. Um, but, but these ex- exercise science students, you know, have like clinical requirements or internship requirements as well, but they often have a lot more flexibility. Right. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of, we had uh, George Graham give a lecture yeah. uh, at UNC Greensboro and he met with our students as well. And one of the things that just stuck with me, he said to them is, um, you know, they learn about all these exemplary practices like you know, sport education, for example, which the article talked about. And he said, but can you take me and show me yes what it looks yeah. like like can you yes. go down the road in greensboro and be like oh yeah it's a random day of the week i can take you and show you what it looks like and his point was it's hard for students to see that and so yeah. like you're you're reading about it you're getting excited about it you do it in class and then all of a sudden you go out into the field and you can't see it yeah and so there's something about being proximal to schools and that message that like if we can you know, stand up co-curricular programs that are exemplary in that way, that st- these Pete students can go out and see what these ideas look like in practice, then, you know, I'd love to direct them toward that. Uh, yep. And yep. so that's been one of my kind of missions to figure out how do I have, you know, one program that if, if you guys want to come to Greensboro, we can go, you know, I'll talk about restorative practice and I can take you and I can show it to you yep. um, in, in practice. Yeah, and we we had to fight we had to fight this exact same battle in Alabama with um, with our with our programming because we would teach our students sport education and um, you know uh, TPSR and uh, skill themes, and then it'd be like, okay, well we're going to go out to these schools and we're going to do this, but by the way, the teachers don't do this. The kids aren't used to it. And they're not going to be receptive to it. Yeah. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and, the, and the cooperating teachers aren't going to be able to support you. So what, when we started our after school program, we had to kind of make a pretty strong case. And it it took a little while, but we got the university to sign off on allowing us to use the after school program as part of the official PEAT curriculum. So mm-hmm. it was it was course embedded. Um, students had to students who were in the elementary methods uh, course with me were required to participate in it unless they had a you know, like an athletics conflict or something like that. And then we would set up an alternative experience for them. But then, you know, Tori was basically the cooperating teacher. And so, mm-hmm. you know, especially in years two and three, when her TPSR pedagogies had developed, you know, she was an exemplar. And so they were coming out and seeing an exemplar TPSR program taught by a skilled practitioner and then getting support from that skilled practitioner while they continued to struggle through their own implementation. And I, and I think that's huge. And I, at Fullerton, we tried, you know, I, I started the after school program there, the REACH program. We ran it. Um, uh, we're now on their going our fourth year. But we ran two years when I was there that I was taking students out and they were teaching while I was there. And, and I think that that 
after school setting provides for so much more flexibility mm -hmm. for pre-service teachers to learn how to teach yep. instead yep. of, hey, it's 30 minute class and the teacher lets you take role and then it starts unraveling and all of a sudden 30 minutes is over. Yes. What did you teach instead of an hour and a half, two hours? And we just uh, published a paper on this in PESP uh, that talks about this as a pre-service uh, model for teaching. And I think, you know, even now at, uh, at Mason, I'm not doing research with this, but we're testing out our curriculum in a tactical games model. So we have yeah. now less time. So we have like a 45 minute to an hour block and we've created uh, lesson plans that are set to teach soccer and basketball through. So the student teachers that are going out into the field are learning how to teach the tactical games model in a series. It's not, hey, you only have 10 hours or 15 hours attached to this yep. class to learn yep. how to teach, which you're not teaching for 15 hours in that field observation. No. You're observing for 10, 12, and then teaching one class or doing certain small you know, teaching assignments. But in that, right. you are essentially the instructor of record with a supervisor there and you learn to teach by teaching, like you were saying. So I think I think yeah. connecting that with the after school program is huge. But I do yeah, well, think I, that I think... there are some constraints with with timing. You know, can yeah. you expect yeah. them uh, to be there for X amount of hours every single day? You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is why we we set up uh, Alabama Tops. That's our after school program that we ran in Alabama. That's why we set it up the way that it did. Um, it, it was so it was three days a week. Uh, the pre-service teachers, as part of their course requirement, came out two days a week, and Tori and I taught the third day ourselves. Um, mm. And they did this for a full year because it was back-to-back -back courses. It was a fall and then a spring course, um, and so they took like and introduction elementary methods. methods. So it was a back-to-back -back yeah. fall and spring elementary. So we had, uh, yeah, so we had, um, excuse me, we had, uh, a, 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 we had sequences of methods courses. So there was like introduction to elementary methods, advanced elementary methods, mm -hmm. and then introdu introduction to secondary methods, advanced secondary methods. And then after that, there was kind of like the final penultimate field experience, um, which was more protracted. And then they'd go out into student teaching after that. So but again, tons of field experience. But the two elementary methods courses before I got there were not connected. You know, the yeah. same person taught them, but they were taught separately. So I connected them so that the field experience was in the same school with the same kids. And we just learned how to use a combination of TPSR and the field mm -hmm. approach over the course of a full year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a good example of, and again, in a way, service learning, you know, you're pro providing a service to the community while the, you know, the pre-service teachers are providing or are learning how to teach. So, right. Yeah. 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 The question, though, Risto, that I think is core to this discussion is can pre-service teachers learn about teaching physical education in physical education adjacent environments? So environments yeah. like before after school programs, summer programs, um, <clears throat> you know, things, things of that such. And, and to me, the answer is emphatically yes, because Absolutely. Alabama, Al Alabama tops was for all intents and purposes, just a, 
pretty good PE program. That's how we conceptualized it. That's how we ran it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think absolutely it can be if it's, if it's done right. Right. But I think, mm-hmm. I mean, what's the alternative if you're not doing right. that? Are you learning through peer teaching? And I think there's a, there's a place for peer teaching, but there's also, you know, I think it creates bad habits Yeah, undergraduate students are nice to other undergraduate students. They're not going to call them out. They're not going to have to go ask to go to the bathroom in the middle of your lesson, and (laughs) you know, just like little things that are management. I think certain pre-service teachers, when they go into their student teaching experience, have never experienced as much. You know, well, I I I really think that if you're going to do peer teaching. I, I have done that in the past. Uh, I've gone away from it actually, though, because I, I really don't think it serves a great purpose other than having the pre-service teachers kind of go through the mechanics of, you know, putting a lesson together, mm-hmm. um, you know, which I think it might be valuable if it's their first time ever teaching. But because of all of those limitations that you're talking about, I think it actually provides somewhat of a, an inaccurate expectation for what teaching is going to be like. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing that you mentioned before, Risto, uh, was observation hours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we, don't, we don't do that. We don't do any mm-hmm. observation. We do a site visit. So I'll take them out for a site visit. So this, this past fall, we worked um, in, a, in, a, in a school uh, right here in Champaign. Um, I brought them out for a site visit so they could meet the teachers, see the classes, meet the kids. I came back day two. I taught a demonstration lesson to show them you know, what I thought that it should look like. Uh, and uh, you know, using the principles that we had learned on campus. And then after that, it's on them. They teach. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not going to be pretty at first. It's going to be messy. But then my job as the teacher educator is to be there and support them. Mm-hmm. And, and right. to help them and to help them through those struggles. You know, I, 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 I have I'm very intentional about how I grade and evaluate so that they don't feel like they're going to get destroyed if they teach a bad lesson right out of the gate. Um, you know, I, I think that that's important, though, to, to get them teaching early, get them teaching often. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So jumping back into and, you know, kind of some of the final final thoughts that we had jumping back into the paper, I thought one of the really interesting things talking about being intentional uh, that Mott's shared his reflective journal with his students. What is your, like, as a teacher, you're sharing your reflective journal with your, with your pre-service students. What, mm. What's your feeling on that? Mm. I found it incredibly brave. And yeah. I'm not sure if I would do that. And I commend him for, for having that trust in his students to be able to hand that over. I, I think that the transparency is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if he knew he was going to. I wonder if that was his intent from the beginning. Because I know, I'm thinking back on some of my self-study, and there's a lot of stuff that I've written in journals that I wouldn't want anybody to see. Because yeah. uh, that's just kind of your private space to work through things. And, you know, sometimes if you have a rough day, you end up lamenting and saying things that in retrospect you probably didn't really mean the way that you said them, but you just needed an outlet for that. I mean, that's part of human mm-hmm. processing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would be willing to share excerpts from my reflective journal, or if I knew that this was part of the point of what I was doing and I crafted my reflective journal in that way, then yes. But then but that I would, would not be a fully reflective journal. 
Well, I think it depends. Right. It depends on the purpose of the study. It depends on the purpose yeah. of the study because from my perspective, if, you know, I, uh, my, my self-study journaling has always been kind of zoned in to what it is that I'm, that my, my problem of practice is. Mm-hmm. So what's the question guiding the study? Because if I'm if I'm if I'm studying you know doctoral education, I'm not going to have a lot in my journal about undergraduate PE majors because yeah. that's not the purpose of my study. Mm-hmm. So you know it's an open free write, but it also is kind of guided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder to what extent does that moderate the journaling if you know that right. they're going to look at it. And the other thing I wondered is. Um, I can't remember if I picked this up in the article, but the students, he had struggled with the students being a little bit disengaged at times. Um, And so I wonder how much they engage with the journal. So how do you make that practice meaningful? Mm -hmm. It it sounds really interesting um, to do. uh, And you probably just have to have the relationship with the students such that they would want to engage with that and uh, maybe even give feedback almost yeah. like a member member check would do um, after, you know, seeing what he's, he's thinking. And to remember yeah. that this was him as a graduate assistant, right? You know, and getting his PhD, like, whew. so, yeah. I mean, I, I will say this as kind of my last thought on the paper, Kevin, I, I appreciate you picking this. This paper pushed me a lot. There are a lot of terms in this paper and a lot of theory that I really struggled with reading and understanding. But I think, you know, this was the best written description of what an assemblage is. You know, yeah. it actually made sense to me as, as I'm looking at it. And I'm like, okay, there's all these intertwined pieces, not individual factors in isolation. And I, you know, understood you know, although I figured I would not understand this term of rhizomatics and then I start looking up definitions and understanding that it's part of this complicated root system. And I just, it made, it got me to a place where I was able to look at the classroom through this, you know, to me, a complicated Mm -hmm. theory of assemblage and rhizomatics and really start making sense of it. And Mm -hmm really it was it was explained to me in a sense that i could understand i thought that was one of the best parts in the in the paper yeah and i, and I guess if i could just make my last point real quickly um you know part of the other one of the other reasons i guess why i selected this paper was you know most of most of my self-study research all of my self-study research has been guided by occupational socialization theory because mm-hmm. that's just how i tend to see the world uh, and, and to me, self-study is essentially an investigation into one's own socialization. And, and, but, but, but that's not the only way, of course, that you can do this work. And, and so it was helpful here for me to see what this looked like guided through a different theory and a different lens. Uh, and I, and I, speak, I think that speaks to the important, importance of theoretical diversity within a field and, and taking kind of similar um, setups similar symbol of similar assemblages maybe and studying them through different lenses Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i I agree with you know especially what you said uh, about assemblage and this uh, rhizomatic mapping Um, i'm looking at the map right now and there's in the work that i've done and the work that i tend to read more commonly there's often these th- these kind of diversity characteristics, whether it's you know a title in school or urban area or 
first generation students or, you know, any various types of diversity. And they just sometimes it feels like we haven't quite accessed the meaning of all those characteristics as much as we should um, or as much as I should, at least in my own space. And it the way they developed this mapping process uh, suggested, like, here's a way that you can see those things a little bit more clearly yeah, and allow yourselves to reflect on them and make meaning of them and allow those participants to have a little bit more of a agency in the process, maybe. So, I mean, I haven't sorted those ideas out <laughs> clearly, but that I really valued the way that it um, provided a qualitative methodology to really embrace the assemblage of all these different factors that are impacting the settings that we work in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I and I think yeah. I think that is a great place to leave off at. We're you know getting towards the end here, so I I want to thank both of you for your time. Um, I I would encourage everybody that's listening if you have questions or comments on this or personal stories about these kinds of situations to uh, engage with with us on Twitter using the hashtag HPE Research. Um, you can follow the podcast at the HPE podcast. Um, we have a very innovative website title as well, the HPEwebsite.com. Mm -hmm. um, so there's blogs on there. There's links to the podcast there. Uh, we just want to really start spreading a conversation to a, to a deeper level on this research, on our research. And um, thank you, Kevin. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, yes. Appreciate your time, and we'll uh, we'll catch you all on the uh, next article of, article club and number five, always in the last week of the month on Tuesday. So I really I really thought you were gonna say catch you on the flippity flip, and well, then you just let me down. But now you said oh. it, and now it's in the universe. It's said. <laughs> I, I am not gonna say that. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> well, that can get, this can all get edited out. Let's let's make sure we know that. No, no, no. I'm keeping this in. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. See you.